Standing, let us pray. Most gracious God, be with us this morning as we gather in your name and celebrate the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, so we give you thanks for the gift of life itself, for the beauty of this earth, for our families and for our friends, and for the life that resides here in this parish, St. Michael's. Bless all who call this place their spiritual home, their place of worship, their place of gathering. May you bless it with the power to do the gospel in every place where your people reside. Empower us to take the gift of the words sung this morning, said this morning, and prayed this morning into a world in need of much love, much compassion, and much forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I'm not looking for my keys. I'm trying to figure out how to turn on this uh, microphone, but I hope that uh, you can hear me. First of all, I'd um, just like to uh, let you know that uh, I'm not really an interloper. Uh, I uh, am not a spy for the Diocese of Washington. I, um, I come to you today uh, as a retired bishop in the Episcopal Church and uh, uh, the former bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Washington, D.C. And that diocese was a very interesting diocese. It uh, comprised the District of Columbia and then uh, four counties in the state of Maryland, the two largest counties, and then the two most agrarian and smallest of counties in deep southern Maryland. I served there as uh, their bishop from 2002 until um, the end of 2011. Actually, uh, the church pension fund said I retired in 2012, so I guess that gives me an extra month. Uh, but anyway, I used to be the dean of the cathedral here in San Diego uh, from 1996 until 2002, and then was um, surprisingly elected as the Bishop of Washington. Uh, you all should be aware that uh, if you live with God and you journey with God, God is always full of surprises. I want to thank Father Doran for his kindness in receiving me and, and also for working with me. Um, Bishop Mathis, before he uh, left, asked if I would continue to do visitations for the diocese when my schedule would permit. I live in Pacific Beach, uh, and um, so I'm not far away from most of the places in this diocese. Yet... Um, as I said to the 8 o'clock congregation, if Father Dora never asks you out to lunch, be very careful. <laughs> because usually, um, if in fact, uh, the bishop uh, in his wisdom said, no, no, uh, John, I'll, I'll pick up the check. By the way, what are you doing next Sunday? So, uh, it's, um, but it's a, it's a pleasure, it's a joy, and it's a gift to be retired and not have to mess with all that paperwork. And all those politicians to be back here in a diocese which Karen and I consider to be home, although I'm basically an Easterner by birth and by ordination. Karen's here with me today somewhere. I'm looking, oh, there she is. Uh, and uh, always follows me around to make sure that I don't get in trouble. 
hard to do, so I hope I don't embarrass you this morning. Um, Lent's an interesting time. I grew up in the Episcopal Church back in the days that many of you were not even around. I, uh, I uh, was a member of Parish of the Epiphany in Winchester, Massachusetts, uh, and uh, in those days uh, we had the 28 prayer book, and uh, we had uh, confirmation processes that uh, required six months of intensive study. You couldn't sneak out of the classroom every week after school we were delivered to the church for an hour and 15 minutes of intense confirmation, questioning, and learning. The purpose was you couldn't receive communion until you were confirmed in those days. So there was an incentive. But also the other incentive was that the bishop in those days was pretty intense about asking you, if you were to be confirmed, questions. So uh, we would all line up at the confirmation or the communion rail, and the bishop would come down and would ask each one of us a question, obviously studying uh, our ability to study the merits of preparation for confirmation. And if you didn't have an answer or had the incorrect answer, uh, the bishop, who was a godly man of six foot three with white hair and piercing blue eyes, would stare at you and say, I'll be back. I'll ask you another one. So that was life in the Episcopal Church, and, and so um, Lent, kind of shifting gears for a minute, is really a time to reflect through this time of, of, of uh, this season that precedes, really, uh, Holy Week, and then um, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, you know, and then all, obviously uh, the celebration of Easter, and uh, it's a time to reflect on many, many, many things, and unfortunately, uh, the, the word Lent comes from the Anglo-Saxon meaning lengthen, lengthen meaning uh, lengthening of days and, and living here in San Diego where we don't have leaves that fall off of trees really. Um, it's hard to tell the seasons uh, from what we used to experience on the East Coast, but nonetheless, you can tell by the sun that things are changing and that plants are starting to grow and that buds are starting to emerge on plants and trees. It's a time uh, when we've come out of winter and we go into a time of growth and new life. It's also a time to reflect on the gifts that God has given us and the journeys that all of us have been on and are still on. So I wanna share some story with you today about journey with the hope that when you leave today, you'll think about some stuff that would define who you are as a Christian, how did you become a Christian, how did you become an Episcopalian, are you really an Episcopalian, why are you worshiping at St. Michael's today, um, and where is God in your life, and, and more particularly, what is your relationship to Jesus during not only this journey in Lent, but your journey on this earthly, beautiful earthly uh, piece of real estate and in the world that surrounds us. It's truly an amazing thing if you think how you got here. My father was an Irish Catholic, uh, and in those days um, we had a lot of statues in the house, and uh, we uh, observed uh, a way of life that was somewhat different than the Episcopal Church. My mother was a, a good Baptist, and they fell in love. God really uh, works in strange ways. and. Um, 
they could not be married in the Catholic Church because, of course, she was a Protestant. So they were married in the rectory of a Catholic church uh, in Vermont. And um, then there was the decision to be made about the kids. Now, my mother, God rest her soul, said that when the priest asked her to sign a document about bringing up the kids Catholic, she signed it, but she had her left hand behind her back crossed along with her legs, which is, I'm sure she always felt some guilt for that. My father felt some guilt uh, about the fact that the ultimatum out of love was, we're going to be Episcopalians, because the clergy kind of dress like those Catholics. They do chant. The music is great. Uh, and as a Baptist, the Bible is very important to me, and they're Bible-centered. So we have lectionary, they have lectionaries, and they have morning and evening prayer. So my brother and I were baptized Christian, and then confirmed Episcopalian. So that's how we got to this church. And we went to church every Sunday, and if you weren't in church, the priest would call. He would call on Monday morning to wonder who was sick or if there was anything going on in the family that he ought to know about. Those were the days when the church did not have to compete with road races, soccer, football, baseball. We had the blue laws in Massachusetts. You went to church on Sunday morning. You got on your knees and prayed. You used the 28 prayer book, and then you spent the afternoon with your family whether you liked it or not. And you always had a nice dinner to go along with that. Those days have rapidly changed, and so my journey starting there morphed into another journey. And I want you to think about yours, you know, your journey. Uh, I really left the church uh, when I was 18. I, uh, I uh, had a football scholarship to uh, a college, and I was a, a good athlete and a terrible student and um, had a vision of being uh, signed by the New York Giants and then retiring at 30, having made some money. Um, but going to college also required you going to class. And um, that was something that was hard to do, uh, at, you know, at 8 o'clock in the morning. And uh, even with required study halls with your teammates every night, um, after the first year, uh, I was given the, the notification that I got the boot. Not, you know, for about a semester maybe, but a boot. So I lost my scholarship, I was tossed out of school, and I called my father up, who was a typical New Englander who reveries planting and, and harvesting rocks, and said to him, hey dad, I got some bad news, I just uh, got thrown out of school and I just lost my ball scholarship. And there was a long pause. And I said, well, what, what am I going to do? And he said, well, you dug that hole deep. Now you figure out how to get out of it. And when you do, let me know. So there I am in Ohio with not a lot to live on, for sure. But I had a gift, uh, which was uh, a musical gift. And my family was very musical, and I studied percussion from the time I was seven until I was 18. So uh, what do you do in the 60s? Well, you know what the 60s were like. They were really a challenge. They were really painful in many ways for our country and for our families. 
It's also a time of a music revolution. The Beatles came into town. Uh, music was changing, and so of course uh, I knew how I could make a lot of money, or some money. So I traveled around the country and, throughout, and in Canada uh, with rock bands, and um, quite frankly was doing quite well. I mean, as a kid who was uh, 20 years old, 19 turning 20, making that kind of money, it was unbelievable. I went out and I bought a car with a big Corvette motor in it, and I had clothes, and you travel around and you would be in a different place every other day, or sometimes you might stay a little bit longer than that. So life was sweet, and I could see, I had a great agent at that time and a, and a record company out of Philadelphia, so I was looking at making a lot of money. That was my goal. At 20 years old, I was gonna be a millionaire plus. And people really liked not who you were, but what you did. So that was a learning very quickly on. And agents were wonderful to you. They told you what to wear and where, to, where you were gonna stay and what, you, what shows we were gonna do, but they always took a little bit off the top, more than a little bit. So I traveled around and then I, I had come back from Canada, went back to Ohio thinking I'd go to school, but then I hooked up with another band that was really a very good band with another set of agents and um, was playing a lot, I mean a lot. And um, I started to ask myself this question. Am I happy doing what I'm doing? Do you like doing what you're doing? Are you happy with your life? So on the one side, people would look and say, he's got the money, he's got the car, he's got the clothes, he's got the women, he's got the that, that, that. On the other side, there was me. And it became a real haunting question. Are you happy doing what you were doing, or what you're doing? And it also raised some issues to me about, um, I hadn't seen my family in a long time because I was on the road. Um, but one of the good things was I met my wife on the road, and she, she wasn't a groupie either. She was a, a very fine student at a university in Ohio. And I was on a show, I was doing a show in uh, Ohio, and I had uh, driven in a snowstorm to get there, and I got to the hotel on Christmas morning at about 1 a.m., and I was exhausted. I had long hair, I had a great mustache. I liked the mustache, the hair you had to have. I have none of that either now. And I'm laying in bed, can't go to sleep, I know I've got to make a decision, and I kept asking myself this question, are you happy? Are you happy what you're doing? And the answer really came as no, no. And I was pondering that as the sun came up, I looked out the window of the hotel, and the sun was up, they had a snowstorm the night before in, in Bucyrus, Ohio. And I just happened to roll over, and I, I, I reached out, and there on the table next to the bed was a Gideon Bible. You know what a Gideon Bible is? If you got it, yeah, yeah. And I, I still, you know, when I travel, I'm always looking for a Gideon Bible, and then I get very angry when I can't find one. I get on the front desk and say, where is it? And they say, we don't have them. And I said, you got to have them. But anyway, I reached over. And I opened it up, and it automatically flipped to the first chapter of John, verse 1. And it was, in the beginning 
was the Word. And the Word was God. It was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him. Not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. And the life was the light of the people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And I put that Bible down, and I waited till it was a reasonable time on the East Coast, and I called my agent and said, I quit. You can't quit. You got a contract. You're going to be in Miami. You're going to be at the Electric Circus in Miami on Tuesday of next week. And I said, I'm not going. I quit. Well, I'm going to sue you. Go ahead. I'm done. This is it. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to try and get an education and figure it out. Now, I share that story with you and that piece of scripture because that was, for me, really kind of another step in the way in which God was trying to enter into my life as God enters into your life. I mean, I would never, ever have thought I was going to be a priest. My friends would just absolutely roll over in the grave. But it was the beginning of a search for wholeness and fullness and to be vulnerable, not knowing what the next day, the next week, the next month would be like. Karen went to work at Harvard. I was teaching music during the day, going to school at night. I had to go to night school at BU in the beginning just to get my grades up. And um, it was really a challenging time for me. And yet, God simply took what I had and kind of molded it. And I think we all have to be aware that when God really speaks to you, and God does speak to you in a variety of different ways, our experiences are always very different. But when God speaks to you, you better listen, because if you don't listen, God is not going to leave you alone. That is a fact. Eventually, the priest in my church came by to see me one day because I had come off the road and he knew I was a rocker, wanted Karen and me to chaperone a church dance, and then about a month later said, let's go and see the bishop. I said, why would we do that? He said, because I think, I think you need to talk to the bishop. And I went in, and those were the days before all these committees and commissions. The bishop would make a decision about whether you were to enter postulancy and then candidacy and then ordination. And he looked at me and he said, uh, Mr. Chain, do you know how to pray? I said, yes. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. He said, no, I don't mean that. He said, Mr. Chain, I mean pray. Do you know how to really pray? And I said, no. And they said, well, we're going to have to work on that, won't we? He said, but I think you'd be good working on the streets of Boston as a worker priest. And he said, you may not see it, but I think you need to consider going to seminary. And I said, I don't want to do that. He said, well, let's give it a try. I don't want to be ordained. Well, that's a way off. Just give it a try. So I went to seminary. 
The bottom line here is that you never know what God is going to want you to do. God is never going to leave you alone. So after three years in seminary, I was going to do a doctoral program at at, uh, the Divinity School. And the uh, dean of the seminary said, John, you come from a community just outside of Boston that has great wealth. You've been privileged all of your life. You may not have known it, but you've been privileged. You need to go back, and you need to be ordained, and you need to be able to go and speak to the communities that raised you up and know you, because they're the decision makers. They're the ones who make the decisions for the people that live in the Roxbury's and the south ends of this country. And I thought about it and prayed about it, and you know, there was no parish that would take me. The bishop would ordain me to the diaconate, but no parish would take me, except one in New Jersey, and it was a theatrical parish. So all these people worked on Broadway or in the music business, and it was really a strange place, but wonderful people. And that began a journey, began a journey. And in closing, as I sat in the front pew of Parish of the Epiphany in Winchester, Massachusetts, to be ordained to the diaconate. Six of us had been selected to go through the process. Three of us made it. The other three, if you didn't pass your canonicals in the first year, you were thrown out. And I'm sitting there feeling, look, I'm thinking to myself, look what I did. Look what I did. I mean, I got thrown out of school. I went to Kent State. I went to BU. I went to this. I went to Yale. I have a degree, I can't even read it, it's in Latin. I did this, look what I did, and I did it with a young family, and Karen's been there. And all of a sudden, the old bishop looked down from the pulpit, and he read this selection again from the Gospel of John. John 15, chapter 12. This is what he said. This is my commandment that you love one another is I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything that I heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that the father will give you whatever you ask of him in my name. I am giving you these commands so that you will love one another. And at that moment, I knew that I hadn't done anything. The only thing I had done was to say yes to God, fearfully. And each one of you here today has either answered that question or will answer that question and will begin a journey maybe joyful sometimes, sometimes fearful, but you will bear good fruit because God loves you and God chose each and every one of you who is here in the pews of St. Michael's today
to do his bidding. Amen.